This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, September 5th, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. In an era of helicopter parenting, something has been lost. The concept of safety has crept so far that it often includes the dubious right of emotional safety. And violators better watch out. What does that mean for young people in the workforce, in academia, in politics, and the ability of those people to bounce back from failure? Greg Lukianoff is author with Jonathan Haidt of The Coddling of the American Mind. We spoke last week. As we were talking before we began recording about children and this overwhelming desire that uh, parents will recognize to protect their kids from, you know, what seems some sometimes feels like in retrospect, pretty mundane, not particularly threatening dangers, it's really hard to combat. And, and yet we really want to do that. And um, it seems that we have institutions now that carry the kind of protection uh, that parents want to provide their kids for many, many years. How did we get here? You know, my pet theory on this, I talked a little bit about it in a short book called Freedom from Speech. And at the time, I called these problems of comfort. But in the book, we refer to these as problems of progress um, because we think that's actually a little bit more accurate. And that essentially, you know, having a society where we have enough sort of free time and leisure and uh, to move on to second order things like how well protected my kids are is actually rel a relatively good problem to have. But that doesn't mean it doesn't create very serious problems of its own. And for a long time, there was a, uh, a very commonsensical rationale that um, look at all these strides we've made by being concerned about child safety, uh, very real strides that came to, you know, at lo uh, lower uh, fatalities due to car accidents, to paint, to poisons. We actually made a lot of progress in this way. So, you know, if, if a little bit of being concerned with safety is, 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 is good, what's the downside of being completely obsessed with it? And there wasn't a lot of people saying that there were real downsides for a long, uh, for, for at least, you know, in the last 10 or 15 years. Um, but people, like uh, me and my co-author John Haidt and Lenore Skenazy, the famous uh, free-range kid's mom, are pointing out that there actually are consequences to um, trying too hard to over uh, and overprotecting uh, children that are real and, and meaningful, including uh, one of the things that we point out in the book is if you take away a, a kid's sort of locus of control, a sense that they're in control of their own lives, that's a perfectly, uh, that's a perfect formula for anxiety and depression. You know, when I've spoken with others about this idea of uh, <laughs> problems that are created by prosperity, obesity is one. And, you know, we, so we conquered the problem of hunger. And so we get the problem, the probably much less serious problem. But a problem nonetheless. Uh, but a problem nonetheless of obesity. So to the extent that uh, parents or adults in the world are realizing that they're that there is a problem that we've created, not for ourselves, but for our kids. You know, what what do you view as sort of the first inkling that that was actually the case, that, that this there was this recognition? 
you know, we, we for the uh, our chapters on parenting, which are actually among my my personal two favorite chapters in the book. Um, we interviewed three different experts. Of course, we interviewed Lenore Skenazy. Um, We also talked to Julie Lithgott-Hames, um, who wrote a great book called How to Raise an Adult. And she learned about this problem from being the dean of freshmen at Stanford um, going back to 2000. She was at the law school when I was at the law school as well back in 1997, I think. Um, and uh, we also talked to uh, Erica Christakis, who is um, uh, a Yale, uh, formerly used to teach at Yale. Um, she uh, is a child uh, psychology expert. And all of them came to the same conclusion from different directions. Uh, Julie started seeing um, uh, parents increasingly getting involved in the lives of their nominally adult children at Stanford. And it just seemed to get a little bit worse every year that kids were increasingly uh, in touch with their parents to make even tiny decisions for them. Um, and she realized this had a psychological toll on students. They really felt like they, they'd never been uh, taught to feel sort of competent or that they could sort of handle their own lives on their own, which is, of course, an incredibly harmful thing to do to, uh, to your kids if you think about it. Lenore came to this point of view, of course. Um, you know, she has a very punchy story about this, but it's true. She, she had her uh, her, her son um, asked her if, if he could take the uh, New York subway by himself during the day with, with a cell phone um, in order to get home. And she uh, let him do this. It went fine. Um, he felt great about it. She wrote about the experience and <laughs> scandalized the entire New York area, got tremendous amounts of hate mail, was called the world's worst mom. And that really brought home to her that that this um, that you can never be too safe and you can never be too careful thing might be actually disempowering our kids. Um, Erica Christakis's point of view comes from working for, with kids in in preschool, and her concern is that in some ways we are avoiding things that give kids a sense of sort of competence, and we're pushing down um, a, a sort of a, a for, like fourth grade level kind of like uh, direct instruction down even into, into preschools, and that's interfering with the kid's ability just to be a kid, to to, to play with risk and uh, figure out things on their own. I've heard uh, Lenore Skenazy uh, talk about the fact that there is a huge marketing apparatus prepared to take advantage of uh, your unwillingness to spend just a few more dollars here and there and here and there uh, all the time to protect your kids from you know increasingly small slivers of danger. But what you're talking about is is in some ways the fear that strangers or uh, other parents will look askance and and say to you that uh, you know you're being a bad parent and that that would really hurt that would really sting yeah, the, the the social stigma is definitely something that accelerates all this, um, that, that essentially if you're not the most paranoid parent, you get looked at as a bad parent. Um, so you, you have to create sort of free-range kid communities. That's actually kind of a first step um, is find other parents who are kind of like, this is crazy. Can my kids play with your kids outside? You know, but the but the real – like the, the one that really kicks things into overdrive that, that, that's gotten a lot of coverage, you know, from, from Reason Magazine, for example, is the – arresting of parents for letting their kids, you know, play in the park, um, walk to school, all of this stuff that, you know, uh, people from my generation before all took for granted we could do um, and was a good and positive thing. In some cases, some of our happiest memories from our childhood were, you know, walking home from school alone on a regular basis. Um, and uh, at least for me, I'm a, maybe, maybe I'm a weird, weird person in that respect. Um, but the, uh, 
the the fact that people are actually getting in legal trouble that's like the first thing you have to solve so uh because it, if people think there's any danger of getting arrested for having free range kids they're just not going to do it so uh we're helping lenore out and spreading the word about uh states like utah um that actually even pass laws saying like listen you know if if uh, uh, that you shouldn't be arresting parents for letting their kids walk to school above a certain age yeah it, but it's more than that at least in utah it's an affirmative defense it's an affirmative statement that children are entitled to uh, alone time out and about, and parents are entitled to give it to them. Yeah, it's a, it's a great, well, in my opinion, well, well thought out reform. Um, also, what a previous generation would have considered complete common sense, of course, but uh, some, the common sense of one generation is not necessarily that of the next. Okay, so um, you know, given some of the, the growing sort of institutional understanding, uh, in a way that uh, parents need to be need to be, as I talked with Lenore about this very subject, need to be uh, regular readers of Fretful Mother magazine, <laughs> and uh, but you know, even in high school and college, you mentioned even at, at a school like Stanford, yep. parents becoming more and more involved. What? do we understand or what do we know now about the impact that has on young people attempting to assert themselves in the world? Right. Well, that was the interesting thing about um, what led, led Height and I to, to, to write this book. We originally wrote an article called Coddling of the American Mind back in 2015, more based on anecdotal evidence that we had of uh, universities reporting increases in anxiety and depression. Um, on campus, and it, you know, we had stories about you know um, psychological services being overwhelmed at different schools, uh, but the the hard evidence that there really was an increase in anxiety and depression wasn't quite there yet. Uh, right when we started writing the book, though, the the data came in for uh, the class coming in in 2016, and what we realized was, what we if we were evaluating the psychological situation in colleges, we should have been looking at the psychological situation in the feeders in in, in high schools, and there was such a dramatic jump in rates of anxiety and depression and horribly enough suicide uh, both attempts and and successful t attempts just from the the 2012 cohort of students to the 2016 cohort of students something really dramatic had had happened and we believe this is at least in part due to a generation um, who have uh, not been given that sort of sense of independence, that sense of locus of control, that sense of I can do this on my own, which is incredibly disempowering and is you know, a textbook way to make someone feel anxious and depressed. Now, of course, we hear horror stories all the time about individual students who feel um, uh, uh, they've, they've never been given a chance to sort of exercise their own agency. Um, but it's the fact that it's showing up so dramatically in the data as well is um, uh, really alarmed. So I actually remember when, you know, we wrote the article kind of predicting that this was going to get worse. And John, when he looked at the data for 2016, was like, well, it looks like we were right. And I remember just being like, oh, my God, like given like how dramatic the jump was, we were like, I really wish we weren't. For every problem, there is an opportunity in a way. Um, and what has been the opportunity identified by uh, bureaucratic institutions that want to, I mean... You know, it's it's nobody's hope that kids not kids be ill prepared for life, but you know, to the extent there are people who are reporting needs, 
you know, what has been the institutional response? What's been the bureaucratic response? Well, um, as the president and CEO of FIRE, I, I mostly um, I'm looking at, uni at universities. Um, and the way universities have responded to, you know, the, the um, increased sort of what, what we talk about as moral dependency on campus um, and, the, and the genuine increase in uh, psychological problems that you see, uh, particularly at the more elite institutions, um, some of the things they've done make perfect sense, try to make more psychological services available. But other approaches that they've taken, um, you know, whether or not it's uh, talking about uh, having trigger warnings or uh, increasingly policing speech in the form of microaggressions. Um, or just trying to make the the, the atmosphere increasingly um, unthreatening, um, we argue consistently is it, it is wrongheaded and likely to backfire. That essentially, if you try to <laughs> um, rather than make this uh, to prepare the student for the road as we as we stay, and but instead try to prepare the road for the student, you're you're going in the wrong wrong direction, and this is why we think we've seen um, a lot more sort of clamping down uh, um, from students themselves on, on, on free speech issues since around 2013 2014. This kind of misguided belief that essentially. Um, we can protect mental health if only um, we defer to the uh, the at basically the the political activists we like the most. It ends up being kind of a, a weirdly disconnected thing because if you're ar arguing for this person can't speak on campus because someone has PTSD, to me that's actually playing politics with a, with a severe mental condition that someone may or may not have. Um, and actually, in a sense, both trivializing it and not taking it seriously enough. In terms of group dynamics, what does that create on campus? And, and, and can you draw that line as, as clearly as you might hope that you could? The uh, One of the interesting differences between the article that we wrote in 2015 and, and the book was in 2015, we were more or less putting for, forward the theory that um, we should see an increase in anxiety and depression and, um, among students because we're teaching <laughs> a generation the habits of anxious and depressed people. And what we mean by that is catastrophizing, overgeneralizing, all of these things that in the field of cognitive behavioral therapy, you know that if you have this interior dialogue that's really sort of exaggerated, you're going to feel anxious and depressed. What we added to uh, – now, we went much deeper into this in the book and we found out some really interesting things, really interesting trends, a lot more data. Uh, but the thing that's completely different about this book than the original article is that we also go into political polarization. We, we also go into this sort of um, contributing factor, but also sort of uh, side factor um, where we uh, not only are we teaching um, a generation the habits of anxious and depressed people, we are teaching them the habits of highly tribalized, highly polarized people. Um, you know, and I was warning about this going back to a long time. That if you have institutions of of censorship, for example, like if you have speech codes, which most campuses did up until fairly recently, uh, very bad speech codes. That is what I mean by that. Most campuses still have some kind of speech code. Um, that that doesn't really change people's minds. It just encourages them to talk to the people they already agree with and to keep their mouth shut on controversial issues among people that won't, uh, who, who think they think might disagree, which is you know one way of keeping the peace, but of course exactly the opposite of what you want happening on campus. Now, the social science on what happens when you have people just talking with their own echo chambers and with their own groups is very, very strong. You end up with this um, with this sort of increasing uh, 
group polarization cycle, you know, that Cass Sunstein, for example, is one person who writes a lot about, but that, you know, there's lots of uh, experiments done to this uh, to this extent. And it leads to a, a very sort of us versus them um, mentality. And you can certainly see that on, on campuses um, going back, uh, on, you know, at least five years. We, we at FIRE saw a very big uptick in this mentality among students. And one thing I always have to be, be clear about, I started working at FIRE 2001. Um, you know, when I, and most of my career when I was dealing with censorship and political correctness on campus, the people who were pushing it were not students. They were uh, administrators and sometimes occasionally professors. Students were absolutely the best constituency on campus for freedom of speech from my entire career from 2001 to about 2013. And something happened around 2013 that suddenly we were on the opposite side of students who were arguing for increased restrictions on speech all of a sudden. Um, and that's one of the reasons why, you know, John and I decided to write the article and ultimately the book is to try to figure out why did this happen so quickly? What's the difference? Like what changed? And we – in the book, the whole book is basically a social science detective story of trying to figure out what changed in that short period of time. So with respect to students on campus having become uh, – a or I guess more willing to have their own speech abridged in the interest of some sort of general welfare on campus. What does that do for students or do to students that might otherwise like to speak out on behalf of people who uh, are accused of having done something wrong? A liberal students, e-liberal e students, um, result in just the worsening of sort of the polarization spiral. It pushes again people talking to just those that they they agree with, um, but it also has negative impacts on professors because if you don't actually have a constituency that you can always appeal to and make the argument, you know, uh, my freedom of speech is at stake without getting sneered at, it creates a, a, an environment where you know professors can get picked off, speakers can get picked off. And then, of course, you have the really scary, dramatic examples that we that I'd never seen anything like, at least during my career, uh, were uh, you know the Milo riots back in 2017. Uh, what happened to Heather McDonald when she went to Claremont McKenna? I believe it was um, the, of course, the, the Allison Sanger who was badly injured um, defending Charles Murray at, at, at Middlebury um, uh, around the same time. Uh, and I know that there was campus violence, you know, in, in, in response to speakers back in the 70s. And, and in a lot of ways, you know, the, that violence was a lot worse. During my career, though, I'd never seen anything like this. And seeing the sort of like um, uh, your words are violence and therefore my violence is free speech, um, it, it's a scary trend because it really leads into uh, – it can really lead into a, a, an uncontrollable situation. Um, and you know what, what I was saying when this started happening uh, back in 2017, I was like, listen, we've got to get a handle on this uh, because eventually this is going to mean someone gets killed. To what extent have uh, state and federal regulations and fear of liability uh, driven schools and – let's say the Department of Education, for example, to uh, respond? How have they responded? Uh, federal regulations and liability are sort of the, the secret engine of what makes things so much worse on campus. Um, and it's something we talk a fair amount. We have a whole chapter on that in, in the book. Um, so, you know, I'll, I'll give you know, a fairly everyday example. Um, someone wrote in the National Review this past week about a ban um, at a college on 
uh, snowball fights. Um, and she wrote about it as if this was, you know, extension of safe spaces and that essentially this is the, you know, the, the, the term I don't really like, the snowflake generation can't handle snow fights. But I'm like, as a lawyer, I was looking at that and going, no, no, that's liability. <laughs> like that, that's them being concerned about someone, you know, losing an eye or whatever. Um, but there are a lot of things that happen on campus that that uh, uh, are made worse by the fact that someone in the general counsel's office is saying, do you really want to get sued about this? Now, the other sort of accelerant is uh, federal regulation. And I've, I believe I've talked about this on the podcast before. But the Department of Education has tremendous influence on how you define harassment on campus. Now, people you know immediately say harassment isn't freedom of speech. Um, but what they often don't know is that the first uh, speech codes of the quote unquote politically correct era of, of, of the 19, late 1980s, early 1990s uh, and continuing through today were all just incredibly broad definitions of harassment that swept in huge amounts of merely offensive speech. So when the Department of Education comes back with their national blueprint and defines it as uh, unwelcome speech of a sexual nature, whether or not a reasonable person would have been offended by it. That has a really uh, a t a terrifying effect on <laughs> university general counsels because they're, they're like, how on earth am I supposed to comply with this other than over complying? And we have seen cases across the country, including an ongoing case at Louisiana State University where a professor, a female professor wa was fired um, apparently for, for swearing at some point um, during a, in class because the, the university claimed because they were trying to follow the Department of Education's um, uh, uh, guidance on harassment. Um, and so the, the, it's, it's probably the, the, the phenomena that I've seen the most throughout my career that people don't get is that these federal, this interrelationship between the way universities run and federal regulation um, is one of the things that produce some of the more head scratchy uh, cases. Now, the good news is the Department of Education um, has repealed a number of these troubling guidances. You know, they're called guidances, but they're really effectively binding on, on universities. Um, and so we have seen some progress on on the federal level. On the cultural level on campus, I'm uh, I'm still pretty worried. For parents who are concerned about this and for young people who are concerned that they themselves may not be the kind of resilient uh, capable people that they would like to be, what do you recommend? Uh, one thing that uh, was really important to both me and Height was that we, one, have uh, real suggestions for what can be done um, at the end, but also that we make it very clear that we're, we also are really looking forward to the discussion that the book provokes and to our, you know, uh, d d the various places we're going um, to hear ideas from other people about what can be done. But one of the, one of the surprising conclusions that both of us came to was really uh, getting behind the idea of uh, making a cultural norm of gap year, essentially, um, that, that, that the, uh, students who are coming into college uh, would really benefit from, you know, working a job in another part of the country for a year before they um, started college. That that essentially some amount of ex uh, of real life experience um, that isn't you know directed like a rocket to make sure that you get into a, a fancy college 
uh, we think could do worlds of good to some of the problems we see on campus. And I, and this is partially, you know, uh, from my own experience uh, working at Fire. Um, non-traditional age students, um, uh, particularly students who have either had real careers before uh, going back to college or been in the military, um, they very often get they disproportionately get in trouble on campus for what they say. Uh, in, in my experience at Fire, partially because they're not really willing to put up with being talked to like they're you know incompetent or that there's or that there's sort of like speech police that they should. Defer to. And I, of course, see that as kind of a good thing. I think that having that outside experience could really um, not just help this, the situation for free speech on campus, but also the situation for mental health on campus. You also recommend cognitive behavioral therapy. And that's a, sort of a, a chapter at the end of the book. Now, the cognitive behavioral therapy, you uh, note, is uh, easy to learn, but there's a lot of training involved in people who, who sort of shepherd uh, people through uh, that kind of therapy. Describe what that is and what it is meant to achieve. I'm a, I'm a huge advocate of cognitive behavioral therapy. I've personally benefited from it tremendously myself. But when I when I go to this sort of extra level of explaining the benefits of cognitive behavioral therapy, I always want people to sort of like forgive the T at the end of it. I'm no longer really so much just saying uh, the therapy by itself. Uh, because, uh, although if you have anxiety and depression, by all means, uh, read books about it, practice it every day. It makes a huge difference to talking back to your sort of like anxious, unproductive thoughts. It's it's it, it's incredible in that respect. But I've I realized that working on campus, and one of the things that led to the first article that I, I, I worked on with Height, was that if we followed some of these simple kind of cognitive therapy guidelines, that essentially if we were to, rather than just ask our internal voice, am I being, am I catastrophizing internally? Am I overgeneralizing? Am I engaged in all or nothing thinking? If, um, which is so great at calming down anxiety and depression, if you if you make that a habit, if we actually practice that sort of outward as well, those are also happen just happen to be they're not just uh, ways to argue fairly with yourself, but they're ways to argue fairly with each other. And I think that particularly given the sort of nasty sort of uh, polarized quagmire we're in, that it just sounds like a wonderful uh, both uh, uh, civil community and university community if people before they made an argument said, is this an overgeneralization? Is this catastrophizing? Is this any of these other cognitive distortions? So I think I think there's a tremendous amount we can learn from uh, uh, CBT. And if people are un still uncomfortable with the idea of it being, you know, having the T at the end being therapy, it's important to understand that cognitive behavioral therapy is essentially um, a, a a real map to practicing stoicism. Um, and it's not not in its sort of like colloquial, uh, commandeering your emotions way, but in the way so like a, like na naming your name your fear. <laughs> Talking about to lady philosophy, like uh, talking back to your own uh, to your own thoughts, um, and, and so I'm just a very big advocate of um, using this as a way to uh, have better have better discussions both internally and externally. And as far as institutions are concerned, you know we've heard, and, and it's perhaps unfortunate that the University of Chicago was made such a people made such a big deal out of the University of Chicago making just sort of a simple declaration about the kinds of speech that they would allow on campus and even encourage on campus that makes them something of an outlier making that sort of uh, that's that statement it's not clear how far it goes um, but is, as far as colleges and institutions and even uh, parents what steps should they be taking to uh, make sure that their kids are, 
at least, you know, able to deal with risks and dangers that are appropriate to their ages. This leads me to a point that I really want to hammer home to almost everybody I talk to. Because whenever, you know, Height and I talk about these issues, we get this um, sense of sort of fatalism that essentially universities um, have become so uh, politically correct, you know, a term I don't particularly love, but that you can't have a meaningful discussion and that this is just the way it is and nothing can be done. And I guess I want to pull my hair out because it, as far as like the latest trend of the sort of like the highly liberal students, this is relatively new. The last time we saw something like this was like the late 80s, early early 90s. Um, and universities have just started to address it in any meaningful way. Basically, like my point is always we have not even begun to, 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 to fight this fight and we're already acting like this is like well, there's no way to resolve this. So University of Chicago um, drafts this very good statement um, updating academic freedom norms for the age of uh, trigger warnings and microaggressions and deplatforming and all that stuff. Um, and uh, at this point, I think nearly 40 schools around the country have adopted some version of it. I would like that to be every school in the country, um, you know, as far as I'm concerned. But when schools, you know, when administrators or parents or pundits complain about sort of like the situation for discourse and academic freedom and free speech on campus um, as if there's nothing to be done, well, universities don't – most universities to our knowledge don't even have a, a section in their orientations that explain the sophisticated, genuinely sophisticated philosophy behind academic freedom, freedom of speech, epistemic humility, all of these all of these kind of things that don't come intuitively to us if we're not teaching students these th them these values and these philosophies, we shouldn't really be shocked that they don't understand them. As I ask everyone, what surprised you most about doing this project? So the most, the, the two most surprising things uh, that I discovered in, in, in the course of working on this book with with um with height, uh, one was of course how dramatically the situation for mental health had deteriorated um, uh, for young people just over the past couple of years. Now, that was, of course, a very negative thing to discover. Um, the positive thing that I, what I see as a positive thing is discovering how well established it is that um, unstructured free playtime, how, how beneficial it is to uh, to children. I, Erica Christakis's great book, The Importance of Being Little, really hit you over the head with this, saying that it's like, listen, the research is just over and over again. You have to give your children, you know, unstructured time to play. Play is actually really essential to developing, you know, uh, a, a sense of competency in, in, the, in the real world. And what was so shocking about seeing how well established this was, was looking at all my, you know, friends who are parents and how it seems to be that the expectation is that your kid is scheduled from 6 a.m. to bedtime every day. And even though we're not listening to this advice, I think there's a growing movement that we should be listening to this advice. But it also, it also leads to the idea that we may actually be able to get to a childhood that looks less like a dysfunctional pressure cooker that is like, you know, make, making students, uh, you know, neurotic in one way and not competent enough and others um, to something that, that 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 celebrates free time, that celebrates play, that actually uh, is both uh, that feels good and is also good for a generation of students still to come. Greg Lukianoff is co-author of the new book, The Coddling of the American Mind, out now. You can subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts. And when you think about it, say, Alexa, play the Cato Daily Podcast. And you can follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.